Kia ora, I'm Anna O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. The transcendent, unclassifiable novel The Book of Strange New Things is award-winning Michelle Faber's eighth and declared last novel. A pastor is sent to a far-off planet with the job description Minister, bracket, Christian, bracket, to Indigenous population. It's a dystopian tale of love and faith that reviewers have observed is intent on making us kinder. This profound writer talks about what it is to be human in conversation with Paula Morris. We hope you enjoy this session. So so Michelle Faber, to my left, has been described as a novelist who is incapable of writing any two books alike. Oh, I should say I'm Paula Morris, by the way, sorry. Really, it's thrown me off completely, sorry. So though he said he never saw writing as a career, he is the author of a number of inventive, illuminating and shape-shifting books, including story collections, novellas, and novels. His first novel, Under the Skin, which I'm sure many of you have read, is an alien thriller about the abduction of male hitchhikers in Scotland and the horror that awaits them. I think Gloria Steinem would approve, do you not think? Uh, The Fire Gospel, sorry, reinvents the Prometheus myth and follows an eager, maniacal author, not at all based on this one, who tangles with Muslim fundamentalists. And his best-selling epic, The Crimson Petal and the White, explores in in visceral details uh, a a stunningly reimagined Victorian London. The author has described this as a book about child abuse and sexual politics. Uh, His most recent novel, The Book of Strange New Things, which you can see sort of upside down here, is a journey into the darkness of space that explores both a dystopian near future and the eternal truths of a, of a love between two people. A Christian minister named Peter is sent to a remote planet uh, called Oasis to serve as a missionary to the natives, where he writes letters to the wife he misses intensely, a wife who's been left behind in a world of war, famine, weather freak accidents, etc. She's at terrible risk. It's the saddest book I've ever written, he said. That's really what I wanted. I wanted it to be the saddest book you'd ever written. So now, now he's stopping Every, his book, and now he's ever. chipping into my introduction. Yeah. All right, let's, give me one more minute. <laughs> so Eva, his wife and muse, if I may call her that, uh, died in 2014, but through her final illness remained a vital and encouraging force in his life, urging him to finish the book of strange new things. Uh, the New York Times, by the way, has described the novel as an interstellar domestic drama, a wrenching tale of mortality, human frailty, and the unbreachable distance between a couple, as well as an allergy to Eva. And out of that endless, profound sadness of losing Eva, after 26 years ago, has emerged a new book, this time a collection of poems, Undying, that will be published later this year, and hopefully Michelle will read us some today. So please welcome to Auckland, Michelle Faber. Now, Michelle, you have been described as a recluse, and I read something where you called yourself a privacy junkie, and yet I know how generous and articulate uh, a guest you've been here in Auckland, uh, including at the masterclass you gave for my Masters in Creative Writing students here on Friday. So you're not really a recluse, are you? I am. It's just that there, there are two factors in play here. There's the fact that I was privileged to be with Eva for 26 years, and she did socialized me more, she taught me to trust people more. And I I think what exhausts 
recluses about hanging out with other people is a mistrust that they're sort of draining energy from you and you need to get away and sort of recover. And I, I do, I don't have that sort of mechanistic negative view of other people anymore. So it is easier for me now to, um, to hang out with other people. And I find that if you, if a situation is very um, superficial, if you start talking to someone sincerely, usually they're up for it. And even though there's all sorts of superficial bullshit going on in the background, you can have a, a real human connection with someone, and that's great. The other thing that's in play is that when an author comes to a literary festival, I think they should be really there. And I really don't approve of authors who go to festivals because it's good for the CV or they've got a book to promote or something, but they really don't want to be there for those people. So when I do agree to, to do something and, and to come out, then I feel that part of the deal is that I'm, I'm actually there in that room with those people uh, and it means something. I think everyone's glad to hear that. <laughs> do you mind if we talk a little bit about your own beginnings? So you were born in the Netherlands and came to Australia when you were seven, is yeah. that right, with, with your mother and father. Um, but there's a lot of trauma associated with your childhood. You left behind a half-brother and sister in the yes. Netherlands. Yeah. Um, I've, I've since re-established contact with my brother. He's great. I, I met my sister for the first time last year, and she's 69 now. So there, there was a lot of, of separation there. Um, created by my, my parents' uh, dysfunctional previous relationships. So your mother tongue is Dutch, but obviously as soon as you moved to Australia, was that the point at which you learned English? Yeah, I, I, apparently I ran home from school and said to my parents I was never going back to that school because they spoke a foreign language and didn't speak <laughs> Dutch. Uh, but then I learned English and perhaps learned it a little better than I really needed to in order to get by and then, you know, started writing novels very quickly after that. I was writing novels already when I was about 11. Fantastic. So If you haven't read the novels, you, you wouldn't say that if, you, if you'd read them. <laughs> so you spoke Dutch at home? Yes, yeah. I, I, have, I have good conversational Dutch. Um, but there's a, there's a real ceiling to it because my parents were not readers um, and there's a whole sort of level of vocab that I was never ever going to be uh, exposed to. So I, I speak Dutch like a, a bright seven-year-old, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so if they weren't readers, how did they feel when you were starting to write so avidly? Um, well, my mother managed to figure out that, that, that my books had, you know, the word fuck and shit and so on, and she thought that was terrible. That's about the extent to which she acknowledged or, or related to, to my work, just, just to note that um, you don't say things like that, you know, in, in, in polite um, society. Um, I think the fact that I became well-known and that one of my books was a bestseller was a status thing for her. She was able to say to people that... In the same way that when I was a nurse, um, I worked as a nurse for many years, and my mother said that I was studying to be a doctor, because I think she 
She felt that nurse just didn't cut it. Um, your childhood was very Calvinist, I've read somewhere. Is that how you would describe it? Um, no, because I'm not really that sure what Calvinist means. Um, my parents shopped around for, for a religion that was similar to um, the Reformed Kerk, the, the, the Dutch Reformed Church, and they eventually ended up Baptists. So most of my religious upbringing was within the Baptist Church. I ran the library, the, the church library. Um, but then I lost my faith when I was about 11 or 12. Have you still lost your faith? Because religion does play an important role in more than one of your books. It does. Um, it's, it's very easy for intelligent intellectual authors to uh, satirize, pillory, basically take the piss out of religion because it's... It's very mockable. You know, religion is intrinsically ridiculous. All religions are. But th there is a reason why people have needed religion all these thousands and thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years. And we're living in an age when clearly much of the world needs religion or thinks it needs religion more than ever before. So I didn't feel it was my place to make fun of that, I'm more interested in getting to the bottom of what it is that religion gives people that, that, that we desperately need, particularly in times when um, the challenges from living, that the, the suffering is unendurable. Because I think that's where religion really steps in and says, look, I, I know you feel just hopelessly lost and, and desolate, but there is, you have a friend, there is someone taking care of you. And the value of that in, in people's lives, given the, the extremity of suffering that, that, that's out there. I mean, people in this room, statistically, th there's going to be people here who are dealing with just unendurable grief and suffering and, and nightmare. And they've come here for an hour just to take an hour out of their incredibly nightmarish lives. And that's not me extrapolating. Statistically, those people are in here with us. And if religion can help those people through, then there is, there is something of value in there. And that's what I'm trying to get at. Even though I myself can't believe, I'm, I'm trying to honor that in a, in a book like The Book of Strange New Things. Mm -hmm. um, do you mind if we talk just a little bit about the beginnings of your writing life with uh, The Crimson Petal and the White? which I was jokingly referring to in the, in the green room as the scarlet letter and the black. And now, of course, my mind is completely confused. I've never read that. It's one of the many classics of literature that everyone assumes I've read. The scarlet letter? Read. No. Who's read the good? scarlet letter in here? It's okay, isn't it? <laughs> it's not the crimson petal and the white, let oh, me tell right. you. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. No, you began writing that at the University of Melbourne. You were a university student. You started embarked on this massive thing that yeah. took you more than 20 years to finish, but you were doing other things in the That's meantime. Right. As you yeah. said, you were a nurse, you worked at various menial jobs as well yeah. when you yeah. first graduated. Why, why did you start writing that novel as such a young man? Um, there were a number of reasons. Uh, I, I had started lots and lots of novels and written 50 pages, 100 pages, 150 pages of them and got stuck. And my first wife was... Uh, an aspiring novelist, and she was working on 
the typical novel that many beginner writers embark on, which is basically disguised autobiography, um, the story of a very intelligent girl who's in a shit family who wants to ascend out of that and um, get an education and so on. So she was very stuck with that novel. I had a number of these abortive novels, and I thought, well, there must be a way of actually finishing a novel. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I need structure, because I'd been... She and I both would start novels in a, in a blaze of enthusiasm and then sort of run out of steam. So I thought, well, perhaps you, sh you should actually build the thing properly. And I looked at who builds novels well, and it was the Victorians, uh, particularly people like George Eliot. So um, I decided I'll, I'll just build this architecture, and then I'll just fill it in. So there's that reason. Also, I wanted to write about nurture and families and people looking for parents and not having parents or not having proper parents. And that took me into regions of, of the patriarchy, feminism, all that. And 1875 was just such a marvelous year for all that with, with um, the first wave of feminism when all these questions were really hot and new. And, um, and also the orig Origin of Species came out around about that time, so Death of God. Uh, it, it just seemed such a, a potent and, and fresh context to, to look at those questions in. And at the time, I was also reading lots of Victorian novels and enjoying them, so I thought, well, I'll have a go at that. So all, all that sort of threesome of reasons made that particular novel a Victorian. And you wrote it longhand, yes? I did. Uh, in fact, um, one of the reasons why I, I didn't try to get published for about 25 years is that, um, you know, I, I had this 800 page book or so. Well, actually, it was only about 600 pages in very tiny writing on full-scap paper. <laughs> so I, I, didn't, I didn't really have a grasp of how big this thing was. But even if it had been 600 pages, I would have had to pay a typist to type it up. And there were ads everywhere for typists because they were typing up people's theses. And they charged $1.25 per page. And I could get an LP, a second-hand LP, for $1.25, and I'd have something to play at home. Whereas, you know, paying this person to type just one page of my novel didn't make sense. So I would just write them and put them away. So how did you know that this novel, though, was different from all the ones you tried and put aside? Because you spent a long time writing it as a first novel. I did. Um, well, first of all, because it was so carefully planned, I knew that all I needed was the, the stamina to produce the prose, and, and it would, I'd finish it, it would work. So all I needed was the headspace and the time. Um, and eventually, I did have the headspace and the time, and I finished it. But the, the first version of the novel, how many people here have read The Crimson Petal and the White? Lots. Oh, quite a few. Um, the first version of that, because it was so carefully planned, uh, was quite um, determined. You know, the, the, there was very little room for organic growth in it. And I had already decided when I planned this thing that sugar would die at the end. Uh, the way the book starts, there's... Thank, thank you so much. Um, 
the way the book starts, there, uh, there's a body, a woman's body, on the streets, which has been run over by a carriage, blood everywhere, guts, etc., and she gets dragged off. You don't know who this woman is, but you get involved in the story, you forget that's how the book starts. At the very end of the first version of The Crimson Petal and the White, Sugar escapes the Rackham household, uh, goes back to the only place that she thinks will be safe, which is the brothel where she started off. Um, and on the stairs, there's um, Clara, the servant, who's had no options after she's kicked out of the Rackham house. So she's become a prostitute. They recognize each other on the stairs. Sugar gets spooked, runs out into the street, gets hit by a carriage, which mashes her body into the dirt. Uh, little Sophie sees this happening before her very eyes, and the words that Sugar's been waiting for for 500 pages or something, Mommy! Sugar never hears it because she's dead. And um, her novel, which she's been working on all her life, uh, is in Caroline's possession, and Caroline is illiterate, so it's no use to her. So she feeds it into the, into the fire uh, to keep herself warm. It's the ultimate feel-bad ending. And, and, and I'm, explain, I'm explaining this to, to my wife, saying, you, you know, it has to be this way because you know, this is the way it's structured and you, know, you don't understand tragedy. You know, this is like the Greek tragedies, etc. This is going nowhere with her. It's complete. She say, this is bullshit. People have been living with this character throughout this long book. They care about her. And you can't just kill her off because of some neat you know, Greek tragedy idea that you've conceived many years ago. Just, just give her free will. See what happens. So I went back and I rewrote the, the, the novel, and I did give her free will to the extent that a, a writer can. And I didn't actually know whether she would live or die, but I just sort of tried to listen to, to the development of the characters and see, see where life was taking them. And in the end, she did survive, and I'm very glad that she did. We all are, are we not? <laughs> yeah. So in the course of writing this novel, you moved to Scotland. So you moved from Australia to Scotland with Eva, and I wondered if it's because you were tired of, of sunshine and daylight, so you thought you would go live in the Highlands. I was actually tired of sunshine and daylight. Um, uh, Eva and I were both serious migraine sufferers. So, you know, I'd, I'd go out and hang out the washing, and it would take me, like, two minutes, and I'd go inside, and I'd be blind, and then I would be blind for the next two hours, and then I'd get a migraine. So we were fantasizing about this context where it's cloudy all the time and overcast, uh, so we wouldn't be getting sick all summer. Um, and, you know, Scotland fitted the bill. You could have just moved to some parts of New Zealand, you know. You didn't have to go so far. Well, what's, what's interesting, in the, in the book of Strange New Things, for those of you who haven't read it, there's, there's a very peculiar atmosphere where the, the rain is circular and it, it's in mysterious patterns. And, and the atmosphere is completely suffused with moisture. So you, you, you go out and, and the moisture just sort of it, it penetrates your clothing and works its way up your arm and around your nipples and so on. It's, it's spooky. Anyway, the first day that I was in Auckland, um, <laughs> I was walking around with an umbrella and I was thinking, you know, this is really peculiar. I've got an umbrella here and yet I'm getting completely soaked. Uh, <laughs> How is this possible? I, I'm on Oasis. We are an alien planet here. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's interesting you talking about this because it's an example of the endless invention of your books. But it, it struck me reading the book that even though some people would say it's science fiction, that you're not really interested in the whole technological aspect of 
you know, how one travels from one planet to the other. That doesn't really grab your imagination. Is that fair? That is fair. Um, when Under the Skin, my first published novel, was, was put out in the UK, um, Canongate, my publisher, and I discussed how that book would be packaged, so to speak, and we, we were very um, definite that there would be no sci-fi clues, that people would come to the book fresh with no expectations of what sort of thing it would, was going to be, and then it would take them on this journey that was different from what they were perhaps expecting. And now that I um, have more of a reputation as an author, that, that's more difficult. And, and with the book of Strange New Things, the vulnerability that it has is that someone will tell you, yeah, it's about this missionary who goes to an alien planet. And then immediately the other person is thinking, hmm, sci-fi. <laughs> I'm not into sci-fi. I'm really not. And that's a shame because, okay, it's, it's, it's got this sci-fi narrative basis, if you like, but it's, it's about human beings and it's about loss and it's about a couple who love each other very much and whose love is, is challenged by distance. And that is, that's absolutely what the book is about. And the, the, the sci-fi furniture of it um, is there to provide entertainment and thrills and magic and all those things that you have a right to expect when, when you want to enjoy reading a book, but, but they're not... They're not at the heart of it. I mean, you've talked about this before, I know, that you take very seriously the idea that you're writing for readers who are the average reader, the intelligent average reader, who want to be entertained. Mm -hmm. You don't have contempt for the reader the way you feel an increasing number of literary novelists are during the, the 20th century. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the example I, I give is, is, is that... Um, Forking in the road, so to speak, that, that you get around the time of uh, T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and Virginia Woolf and so on. Pe people who, at least in some phases of their career, had contempt for the average person because they just weren't bright enough to get it. And I do think there's a risk with literary authors that they will be writing for the admiration of other literary authors. And that people in their desperation for entertainment, for having a good time while they're reading a book, uh, will go to really crappy, exploitative, bestsellery fiction, which will be playing on those needs while giving them very little of substance or, or, or enduring value. And, you know, Book of Strange Things is a very serious book, and it's, in some ways, you know, it is the saddest book ever written in some ways, because it, it, it is not just about one kind of loss, it is about all the conceivable kinds of loss, everything that we will lose. Uh, because ultimately we will lose not only elderly loved ones, we will lose our children, we will lose our own bodies. Ultimately we will lose the planet. It's just loss, loss, loss down the, down the line. And that's a, it's a very heavy thing to tackle. And I feel that if I'm expecting people to go there and to face up to those things, then somehow, magically, I, I should be able to find a way of, of also giving them something that sustains them, consoles them, thrills them, uh, so that they don't regret having read the book. Uh, you know, 
how pointless is that? Someone reading a book and having and regretting having read it. I, you know. Would you mind reading us a little from the book now, or would um, you like to read something else? Uh, I'll read a, a, a tiny little bit from, from the book, which is the only bit that I've managed to, to find in a copy that's not my battered old copy with lots of bits of paper in, which is in the hotel room. Um, this is a bit where Peter, our, our Christian missionary, has been getting to know the indigenous population of this planet, who are called the Oasins. Now, they, they are genuinely alien. They're not alien like Star Trek Babylon 5 alien, which is like a human being with bits of polystyrene stuck to them saying, we are an ancient civilization. <laughs> they are really alien. So one of the things he can't figure out about them is what gender they are. And he sort of had a look between the legs, but there's really nothing there. <laughs> so he, he just has to sort of decide whether particular ones are male or female. And they all look exactly identical. And they help him out by identifying themselves as Jesus lover one, Jesus lover two, Jesus lover three, and they all wear different colored robes. So he manages to sort of get a slight system where you know the, the one with the banana yellow robe, that's Jesus lover five. And that actually ends up being his favorite oasis. and this is a little encounter between him and her. Tell me, Jesus lover five, said Peter. The person you love who makes you sad the one who doesn't believe in Jesus, is he your son? My lover. And have you other brothers and sisters? One alive, one in the earth. And your mother and father? In the earth. Do you have children of your own? God, please, no. Peter nodded as if he understood. He knew he was not much the wiser and that he still had no proof of Lover Five's gender. Please forgive my stupidity, Jesus Lover Five, but are you male or female? She didn't reply, only cocked her head to one side. Her facial cleft did not contort. They don't have faces, they've got these shapes which are sort of like fetuses, of two fetuses facing each other and when they make noises it's as if the little knees of the fetuses rub. Uh, he, um, he wondered if this meant that she was smarter than Jesus Lover One or more guarded. You, you just referred, you, you just told me of your brother. You called him your brother, not your sister. What makes him your brother? and not your sister. She considered this for a few seconds. God. He tried again. <laughs> Are you your brother's brother or your brother's sister? Again, she pondered. For you, I will name me with the word brother, she said. Because the word yeah, is very hard to speak. <laughs> but if you could say sister more easily, <laughs> is that what you would say? She shifted her posture so that the robe again covered her groin. I would say 
Nothing. In the story of Adam and Eve, he pressed on, <laughs> God created man and woman, male and female, two different kinds of people. Are there two different kinds here too? We are all different, she said. Peter smiled and looked away. He knew when he was beaten. <laughs> In your acknowledgements of this book, you thank Marvel Comics. And I wonder yeah. if you talk about the influence of comics on you and your, and your writing in this book in particular. Well, when I emigrated to Australia from, um, from Holland, at the airport at Tullamarine, I was bought a Casper the Friendly Ghost comic. And Casper the Friendly Ghost comics are really, really shit. But it, it did introduce me to that sort of comic. And I very quickly became very interested in Marvel Comics, and particularly in the work of a creator called Jack Kirby, um, who was a, a universe builder. Uh, he, he, he created basically everything that is on Hollywood movie screens at the moment. Not that he got any credit for it or any money from it, but uh, he was a tremendously fertile imagination and, and very important to me as a young person just this sense of, of the, the fertility and the fecundity of, of the man's imagination. And that kind of sense of wonder I wanted to, to bring to the books that I'm, I'm offering to you to read. Um, I, I wanted to carry on that, that sense of, of stumbling into a, a, an exotic world that was just beyond a door you, that you opened, not realizing what was awaiting you on, on the other side. Um, and I, I don't, my relationship with comics is not a sort of postmodern analytical one, although, you know, I, I have that as well. Um, I, I still go back to, to Jack Kirby's comics and just those images, that imagery is, is just exciting and lovely. And, um, I, I hope that for some readers who have read a lot of incredibly dull literary fiction, because there's actually nothing worse than a really, really dull work of literary fiction, um, that, that they might get something actually thrilling and fun and exotic, as well as moving and, and um, uh, that overused word, heartbreaking, um, in, in my work. I don't really want to say this, but it seems like we should address it. You have said this is your last novel. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear that. Have you changed your mind at all about this? Well, Eva certainly didn't want to hear that, and she, she f sort of forbade me from mentioning that in, in interviews, because I had already decided about 10 years previously how many books I had in me, and when I was writing The Fire Gospel, I knew that that was the second last. And when I started, planning, hatching, the book of strange new things, I knew that was the last. And I, I discussed that with Eva, and she said, A, never say never. Um, and she, she loved me, and she supported me, and she believed in my work. So she felt that there should be more of it. Um, then when she was diagnosed, which was about three chapters into the book of strange new things, um, the book was changed by that. It, it became more about the, the vulnerability of the body, the things that happened to the body, as she herself was 
becoming sicker and sicker. And when I finished the book, and it, it is clearly such a valedictory book, it's, it's just, it's waving compassionate and sort of affectionate goodbye to a lot of things. And she at that point was losing herself and about to die. And I think she, she got to the point where she was okay with, with this being the last novel. Um, I'll, I'll continue to write. Um, I, I believe this is the last novel, for big novel for grown-ups. I'd quite like to write something for children, for younger readers, um, something that isn't about, you know, death, faith, sexuality, and so on, but, um, but that's just sheer fun, sheer adventure. Uh, I'm also working on Eva's unfinished short stories. She wrote a lot, finished very little. So I hope that one day there may be a collection of short stories by Eva and Michelle Faber. And I'm writing a biography of her, not for publication, but for the family, for whoever in the future might be interested in who this woman was. And that's plenty to be, to be getting on with because um, I'm 56 and there has never been a male Faber who lived longer than 59. And that's, that's not to say that I'm going to drop dead at 59. I hope to live a great deal longer, but the statistics are not good and um, I, I sh it would be unwise of me to just assume that I'm going to you know, motor on into my 70s and 80s. I was going to ask you later if you're an idealist, but I won't now. Um, <laughs> Michelle, would you mind reading us some of the poems from the collection that's coming out later this year? Yeah, it's, it's coming out in July. Um, these little red boots here, by the way, are uh, Eva's red boots, and I've been taking them to various parts of the world where she had never gone. Um, and taking photographs of them in, in various contexts where I thought she would have been happy. Um, and she really avoided the limelight. She, she wouldn't have wished to be here on stage. But to, to be brutally honest, I was scared that if I put the boots somewhere amongst you in the dark, that when the lights came on after the event, the boots would no longer be gone and um, I wouldn't be a happy bunny. Michelle, so. don't worry, you're not in Australia now. <laughs> <laughs> Very trustworthy. Right, okay, okay. <laughs> Um, the, the collection uh, follows the, the narrative, if you like, of, of Eva's illness and her death and, and my grieving. And some of the poems are very, very confronting and others are more elegiac and, and, and tender. This one from early on in the collection is called His Hands Were Shaking. His hands were shaking. The hematologist who lifted up your dress and took the sample from your spine. Also, he blinks too often. You want to tell him, look, this blinking isn't helping. Either close your eyes or keep them open. <laughs> it would be nice to think his tremble was distress at causing pain to one so beautiful and in her prime and not from drink. In time, when these appointments grow routine, you'll pray the secretarial roulette assigns you to a different member of the team. 
In time, the trembling blinker will retire, vanish unannounced and overnight, and you will never have to sit him down and say, hey, listen, I've been thinking about the shaking and the blinking, and maybe you and I are just not right for each other. Um, I'm going to, to read you one of the, the toughest poems in the collection, and this, I think, will land me in some trouble, perhaps, with some readers, because there's a kind of convention about grieving poetry. Um, there are things you're allowed to say, there are other things you're not allowed to say. And I'm hoping that there will be people who have wanted someone to say this sort of thing, and it's just not out there. This is called, You Were Ugly. You were ugly at the end. You knew it, and I knew it. Bald, bloated, piggy-eyed, your flaccid arms bruised black, your belly mildewed with malignancies, your vulva and eyelids hairless, your pupils crossed and sightless, your breasts weighing down your heartbeat, your bed-bound body, 75 kilos of spoiling meat. Now, choosing photos for your funeral, I see again how beautiful you were, how routinely, ravishingly lovely, how graceful in the flesh, how happy in your skin. I called you gorgeous at the end. All lovers have names for each other, that are not their names. Gorgeous was mine for you. It wasn't true in those days before you finally let yourself go. You knew it and I knew it. You were ugly, but not now, not now. What do you think? Shall we leave it there, or one more? One more. Come on. Right. Okay. Um, well, because the book isn't out, um, I'll read you the second last poem in the collection. This is called Come to Bed. That last year or so, we seldom slept together. There were three of us in our marriage, you, me, and your cancer. I would come and see how the two of you were getting on, if you fancied some breakfast after a long night together, some lunch after a lie-in, some supper after dusk, as the curtains were drawing in. Later, still, I would read to you bedtime stories. On bad days, all time was bedtime. Then I would retire to let you fail to sleep. You had your routine, your stash of tissues under the pillow, your unsleeping pills, your immobile phone, your thin white scarf, your thicker pink one, your writing pads, your pens just there, everything in reach but me. Now I lie in the bed that came from Australia, 
old when I bought it in a charity shop. This mattress loved our bodies, grateful as a rescue pet, set for the long haul. We shipped it 10,000 miles, birthed it in your highland paradise, braced our naked feet against its base countless times, man, bed, and wife. This bed has doubled now in size, and I am single, huddled, blanketed in harm. I'm in danger of forgetting the feel of your fingers, the warmth of your belly against my back, the shape of your thigh under my palm, in danger of losing you forever to the other room. I've waited patiently, oh so patiently, before asking in my gentlest voice, can I lure you away? Can I tempt you with our history? This mattress has missed you. Hollowed, it is fit for no one else. Oh, I know you are snug in your self-containment. I know you are settled, finally at ease in your ash. But please, just for tonight, just for one night, sleep with me. Michelle, I have to say, I think your poems contradict something you said, where you said once, I don't think literature helps, I don't think writing helps anybody or the writer. You don't really think that, do you? I thought that for a number of years when I was very, very... Um, very despondent about Western adventures in Iraq and Afghanistan, and human, the human race has seen the evidence so many times that in order to fix a very complicated problem, if your solution to that is to go and kill a heap of people and destroy their homes, that's probably going to make things worse rather than better. And we just don't seem to be able to learn that. And I took part in all the anti-war marches and I wrote all the anti-war journalism and of course, the people who really determine what happens in the world don't read, don't care less about people who are going on anti-war marches, and, and the, march of, the march of catastrophe goes on. And that made me very, very negative about the role of the writer. And I had this sense that, that, that people read books and they think, yes, I'm very moved here, this is life-changing, I will never be the same again but actually that's just a feeling they're having while they're reading that particular book. It's like a kind of emotional wankery, and that when it actually comes to how they behave, how they relate to other people, how they vote, literature makes no difference. That's the, that's the place that I was in, uh, and that made me want to withdraw and you know, all that. The, where I am at now, um, there's a lot of horrible, superficial, flippant entertainment out there. And I think that if a decent, intelligent person who's very upset about the state of the world can feel even for an hour while reading a work of fiction or by reading poems that they're not alone, that there's someone else out there who grieves with them or who's, who's equally upset at um, the, the, the evils of, of those who rule us, then that is of value. 
it's, it's of, in global terms, it's a very small value because it doesn't make any difference to how things turn out. But for that individual on that afternoon, at least they feel this, there's a connection between them and, and another soul. Uh, and maybe if that's all that literature can achieve, maybe that's enough. Maybe that's worthwhile enough. And it's taken me a while to get to the point where, where I'm okay about that modest um, objective actually being worthwhile enough for me to bother doing it. Thank you very much. And please join me thanking Michelle Faber. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.